Uh, my name is Philip. I am one of the pastors here at the church. It's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, pastors David and Jeff are off traveling with a, with, at the uh, hunting retreat. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to be with you. I'm kind of next man up this morning uh, and excited about that. I don't get the chance to travel as much now as I once did. But there was one trip that I always did each year. And some of you can probably identify with this is that I, with the company that I worked for, I had the opportunity to go to their annual sales conference. The annual meeting, it took place at the company headquarters. All the, the sales personnel in the country would go to it. There were about two or 300 of us or so. And we would go to this hotel ballroom and we would be in this large room and it was early in the morning. So whenever we started out, the CEO tried to kind of find a way of pulling people's interest in. It's early in the morning, it's hard, people are tired. It's, okay, how can I really start to engage people where they'll start to, to pay attention? So he always kind of had an icebreaker that he started with. He would do what he called flipping cards. And what he would do is he, was, he would have a bowl sitting next to him with the names of everyone who was there. And he would draw out a name. And when he would draw out a name, he'd read it out and that person would come up front. Again, pretty large room, about two or 300 people. This person would come up front. They wouldn't bring anything with them. They had nothing to lose. They would come up front and have the opportunity to flip cards with him. And what that was is he would be holding a, a deck of cards and he would flip over the top card. And their responsibility was to say whether they thought the next card was going to be higher or lower. Pretty simple game. And if they guessed right, then they got $100. Well, that was a pretty good game, really. Uh, they, they came with nothing. Now they could get $100. And people would come up there. I saw lots of people play this game. And some of them would go, home, would go back to their seats with nothing. Some of them would get that $100. And most people after that would go back and sit down. Because after all, now I've got $100. And I came with nothing. But if you wanted to continue, you had the opportunity to go double or nothing. And a lot of people would, would choose to take that next step. Now they had the opportunity to flip cards again. And if they won, they got $200 or they went back to their seats with exactly what they started with, nothing. And almost everyone would, after the, if they won that, they would immediately go back and they would sit back at their seats. They were, they were done. But there was one guy, and you know, there's always one guy. There was one guy that decided, you know, I'm gonna keep going. So he had made it up to $200. He decided he was gonna keep going. So the CEO held out the deck, flipped over the top card. It was around a four or so, pretty easy. So. The next one's going to be higher. He flipped over the card, and it was higher. So for those of us that are mathematically challenged, now this person had won $400. And again, they started with nothing. So there was some excitement kind of around the room. The feel of the room started to change because people were starting to get into this now. We're not used to seeing someone do this. Well, he said the last thing anyone expected him to hear, any, anyone expected him to say, he said... I'm going to go again. All right. So now everyone, the anxiety in the room started coming up a little bit. People were kind of on the edge of their seats. You could even watch that guy. He was kind of rubbing his hands on his, on his pants. He was kind of going back and forth a little bit. He was, he was nervous. Card was flipped. It was around a nine. Okay. Well, then the next card's going to be lower is what the guy guessed. Next card was flipped. And it was lower. This guy came away with $800 from nothing. And of course, right after that, he said, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And he went and he sat down quickly. 
Because even he had finally reached to the point to where he just, it was too much, he had too much to lose. Oftentimes we begin our Christian lives from a place where we don't really have anything to lose. Maybe you became a Christian at a young age and well, at a younger age, we just don't have as much stuff. So when it came to, if Jesus wanted us to do something, absolutely, we, we were going to do it. Others of us, maybe we became a Christian at an older age. Maybe, maybe we had just gone through something different. Maybe we had uh, been in the midst of an addiction, gone through a really difficult season of life. And maybe we had kind of hit that rock bottom place. And we came to know Christ there. And when it came to pursuing him, absolutely. Whatever he wants me to do, I'll do anything. I've got nothing to lose. Others of us just kind of were tired of life having this empty feeling to it. We're tired of life just not being what I thought it would be. We were just sick and tired of maybe feeling sick and tired. And we came to know Christ. And then we began just this, this all-out pursuit of him. We just went all and Now, hold on, before I say that anymore, just, do y'all know what I mean when I say going all out? That's kind of a, people have told me that's kind of a Southern saying or it's something maybe that applies a little more to athletics. But going all out is kind of this way of throwing caution aside, just pr pushing everything out of the way, just going all out, really pursuing your goal with reckless abandon. I kind of visualize a, a four-year-old at Jamboree when I think of this idea. This past year, I had a four-year-old at Jamboree. And for those of you who have experienced this, there's no such thing as walking. Oh no. He gets what he wants to do and he tears out to, to do it. He's either running towards the next ride or he's standing in line. Those are kind of the two options. And when he's running towards something, he might bump up against things. He might slip and fall down and get up, dust himself off. And he'll just keep going because he has a goal and he's going to do everything in his power to pursue that goal. He's going to go all out. And when we first come to know Christ, many of us begin just going all out to pursue him. But after a while of, of looking, looking to him for life, eventually our life starts to reflect that. We start to apply his principles. We start to, to do what he says to do, live out the one another's of scripture. And we start to see that we, we develop character and integrity. And we start to gain influence with people. And maybe this, this starts to, to carry our careers. We start to work our way up the corporate ladder. Maybe you have a career when you didn't maybe even have one before. Maybe you start to see God bless you relationally. Maybe you start to develop friendships that maybe you've never had, maybe at least at that level. And wow, I've never experienced friendships like this before. Maybe God blesses you with a, with a spouse. Uh, maybe blesses you with kids. Maybe through your career, for your family, you have the ability to buy a house. Do things that maybe you never thought you could do. Have a car, take vacations, do kind of whatever. But almost without even realizing it, we've moved subtly from this place of having nothing to lose to now I've kind of got some stuff I could, I could lose. And it starts to affect our Christian lives. It starts to affect our pursuit of Jesus. Because at one point, what was at first, I'll do anything for Christ, now I kind of start hesitating a little bit. Because if people start seeing me acting a certain way at work, then it might put things in jeopardy a bit. And if things there are put in jeopardy, then the house can get put in jeopardy and there's a lot that could happen. People, you know, it could affect friendships. It could affect my reputation if, if I start standing out in a way that I maybe don't want to stand out in. Or if I try to share Christ in a way and people start to see me in a, maybe a narrow light or something like that. And we start to proceed more with, with, with risk assessment where we're trying to analyze and we're trying to, to, to think through, we're hesitant. 
And without even realizing it, we, the Christian life starts to almost feel more like a burden. It starts to feel more like just kind of trudging ahead instead of something that was an opportunity to pursue. So what are the things that keep us from going all out to pursue Jesus? What are those things that kind of hold us back from this all-out pursuit of Christ? This morning, we're going to look at a guy who seemingly had everything going for him. He was a guy that seemed to have his act together. He was at the top of the social ladder. He was, he was someone that people looked up to. We only know so much about him from Scripture. We mainly know about him because of the descriptions that are used, which we find in different parts of the passage. We know that this guy was rich. We know that he was young. And at least one gospel account refers to him as a ruler of some kind. So he had authority. This morning, if you would, open up with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler. So open up with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. We are going to start in verse 17. Verse 17, and it says, As he, as Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that our self-reliance keeps us from going all out to pursue Jesus. That our tendency to rely on ourselves holds us back from this all-out pursuit of Christ. Let's look at the passage. Look at verse, at verse 17. He comes up to Jesus, and he, he kind of has a couple of false assumptions. He starts out saying, good teacher. If you're someone who underlines in Scripture, underline the word good. Immediately we see that he, he has this, this idea that people were good, that people could be good, that people, by, by what they do, they can, they can merit this, this title called goodness. He thought that they could meet this high standard of worth or merit through their accomplishments. They could be good before people, before God. People could be good. Well, Jesus is very quick to answer this. Jesus says that no one is good except God alone. You see, in that day, there weren't very many teachers that would call someone good. Not many rabbis would call someone good. Because very clearly in the Old Testament, God is good. And they didn't want to come anywhere close to calling someone else good in fear that someone might think they're holding up someone to the level of God. And they didn't want to be guilty of blasphemy or anyone to even accuse them of that. So they referred to no one as being good. Now this guy, he, he kind of threw that caution to the wind. He calls Jesus good teacher. Jesus says there's nobody good except God. Paul echoes the sentiment in Romans 3. Uh, Verses 10 through 12, where he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, echoes this sentiment that, that people just aren't good before God. When you look at the grand scheme of things, we all, and we'll see this guy's idea of, of, of being good is that we can merit good contributes to his next false assumption. His next false assumption is that he thought he could earn eternity with God. Look at verse 17 again. Good teacher, what must I do? Underline I do, if you would. This, this idea that he can do enough himself 
to merit God, to earn eternal life with God. He could earn it. Now, think about who he, who he was. Again, we know very little about him. But if we take what we do know and think about it, he is someone who was rich. So he had a lot of resources. He had a lot of wealth at his disposal. He was someone who was young. So he encountered all this wealth at a fairly young age. And he was someone who had authority, someone who was called a ruler. More than likely, he was some sort of a business person, some sort of a, an entrepreneur, which also tells you that he's probably someone that worked really hard. He's probably someone who was extremely intelligent. I mean, to get to where he was in that day, I mean, he, he was someone that people probably looked to. He probably lived up to the closest thing uh, of an American dream that we can think of. Someone who through his hard work, through his effort, through his learning, was able to achieve a lot at a young age. So he had experienced a lot of success personally. But he had also experienced a lot of success religiously. Because in that day, anyone who had wealth, anyone who had money, was seen as being favored by God. They were seen as being especially blessed. Because in that day, they would look at the Old Testament law, and they would see that, well, if you did what God wanted you to do, he would bless you. If you didn't, he would curse you. So apparently this guy was doing a lot of things right because he was really blessed. So they saw him religiously as being, as being kind of someone who had a lot of success. He also was someone who probably had a very diligent spiritual walk. If you look at, you know, Jesus points him towards the law. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. So he was someone who had experience looking at God's laws. He's someone that probably studied them, probably someone who worked really hard to try to live up to them. He was someone who probably had a, a deep spiritual walk with, with God's law, learning from it, probably knew a lot of it, knew a lot of the passages. I mean, he was someone that was very influential probably in that day. He was probably someone that if you saw this guy you would, and you had a son, you would want your son to be like this guy. He was someone that if you had a daughter, you probably wanted to introduce her to this guy. I mean, he was kind of on that level. He was someone kind of like a, uh, like a Tim Tebow of that day. Someone who at a young age had experienced a lot of success. Had a lot going for him, kind of had the look. He, you know, a lot of success in college football and as a broadcaster. And he, uh, someone who was known for his leadership, known for his integrity. Was someone that people kind of hold up. As the model of, yeah, this, this guy. And, but surely Tim Tebow would make the cut, right? If anyone could live up to God's standard, surely it's someone like Tim Tebow, right? But this guy fell short of God's standards. A little farther in the Romans passage, we see in Romans 3.23, a verse that's familiar to a lot of us, where Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we all fall short of what God created us to be. Here was a guy who tried to, to live up to the law, tried to do everything he could to live up to the law. Well, we see in James 2.10 that for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. So he could try to live up to the law as best he can, live up to that expectation, but the first time he lies, the first time he um, uses, slips up and uses the Lord's name in vain. The first time he covets something. Now he's broken the entire law. 
But we know that the purpose of the law isn't to try to live up to it. That's what this guy thought. The purpose of the law is to point us towards our sin. So the reality is that in order to attain eternal life with God, one has to be perfect. That's, is it possible to, to gain eternal life with God through the law? Absolutely, if you're perfect. The only way it can happen. But the reality is we all fall short. The ironic thing is Jesus had just finished telling them, had just finished telling everyone how they could enter into the kingdom of God. See, that's why context is so important in Scripture, why you don't want to just take verses out of their context, why you want to always, when you're studying a passage, look at the passage, look at the verses before, look at the verses after it. Because if you look right before this section, starting in verse 13, it says, and they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and blessed them, laying his, his hands on them. Quite a, quite a tender picture right there in the end. But don't overlook Jesus' words right before that. Jesus says that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, how does, how does a child receive something? If you've ever interacted with, a, with an infant, with a toddler, how does a child receive something from someone they trust? You, 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 you hold something out and they just take it. They just take it. They take it wholly. They take it completely. They have no reservations. They have no... Um, feelings of deservedness, they, they, just, they just take it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that for grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So a, a child receives what is offered. But a child also does it in a spirit of of being utterly dependent for everything. I mean, think about, again, an infant, a toddler. They can't do anything for themselves. Anything they have that they need for their daily survival has to come from their parents or has to come from someone else. There's nothing that they can do for themselves. I can relate to this a little more closely. We have a, uh, my wife and I have a nine-month-old child. Uh, his, name is, his name is Evan. If you look up at the screen, this is Evan. And you see, Evan can do a lot of things. He can take amazing pictures, as you can see. He smiles a lot. He can take great pictures. He can say, he can say Dada. He started that. I'm particularly proud of that. He can say Mama, too. He can say Mama, too. Um, he can crawl. That actually almost makes him more dependent on me, because now we've, we've got to try to figure out where all he's going. But he, he goes all over the place. And he, 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 what else can he do? He makes family pictures complete. I mean, it wouldn't be a great family picture if Evan wasn't a part of it. Evan can do a lot of things. Evan just can't do anything for himself. All he can do is cry out when he needs something. And trusting that his, his parents will lovingly bring it to him. Will lovingly meet that need. That's all he can do is to depend on, on us. 
And what Jesus says is that how, that's how a child receives the kingdom of God. That's how one enters into the kingdom of God. That's how one has eternal life with God. Through utter dependence, through receiving the gift. See, a lot of times there's a false assumption about the Christian life. And we tend to think that the Christian life consists of once we come to know Christ, then it's a matter of learning and doing all that I can do so that, so that I, can, I can be independent, I can serve, I can do whatever I want to do. But the reality is the Christian life is a walk of dependence. Just as in when I first came to know Christ, as well as first trying to get to God, there was nothing I could do. Jesus had to do it all for me. He did on the cross what I could not do for myself. He did it for me. And the, the maturing of the Christian life isn't a move towards independence. It's a move towards a greater level of dependence. As I mature, I'm to grow closer to Christ through depending on him more. That's maturing in the Christian life. It's a growing in that aspect of it. And, so, and we, we can't attain eternal life with God on our own. We can't, we can't attain it apart from Christ. This was actually my struggle for a long time. Uh, before, before becoming a Christian, I was someone that was, the, um, uh, that was the victim of verbal and emotional abuse at a young age. And I was someone who was left with no feelings of self-value, no feelings of self-worth. And I began this journey around my late middle school, early high school years of trying to build myself back up trying to put back what was, what was taken from me. And I would try to build up my worth, build up my value. And I would try to do things like I would change my, my appearance, the way I dressed, my, how I did my hair, contacts. I would try to change my appearance. But one of the main things that, ways I tried to build myself back up is through what, my accomplishments. It's through what I did. And I would set out and I would, again, middle school, high school, early college, I would try to make the best grades because if I made good grades, maybe, maybe there'll be some aspect of worth I can gain from that. Or if I got in certain organizations, certain honor societies, maybe, maybe that's where I can find some worth. Or getting this certain job that I really want. Or maybe it's in getting in that school. If I could just get in that school, then that'll make me feel some semblance of value. Or maybe those campus organizations once I was at school, Whatever, whatever it may be. And as I pursued, I still felt this feeling of emptiness. But one of the problems that I encountered was I was actually somewhat successful at some of the things I pursued. I would try to get good grades, and I did. I would try to get in certain honor societies, and I did. Getting to that school, I got into it. One of the biggest problems that that caused for me is because I had experienced some level of success on my own, I was tempted to think that, oh, well, I can, I've done pretty well so far. I can do things pretty well on my own, right? And it actually hindered my turning to Christ, my trying to lean on him, trying to depend on him. It, it hindered that. Success can be one of those difficult, difficult things that causes us to trust in ourselves instead of in Christ. And success really is only about comparing ourselves with others. It's really, you know, maybe I'm a little more successful than this person, but okay, I'm, I still need to go a little ways to get up to this person's level. It's really about comparison. You know, if I tried to stand up here and throw a, throw a rock as far as I could, I could probably get it uh, not quite as far as maybe someone like Tim Tebow if he was standing up here and trying to throw a rock as far as he could. You know, he probably would get just a little bit farther than me. But if we were trying to throw the rock from here to Atlanta, Georgia, we'd both be far short. 
no matter how big of an arm he's got. And that's where we are before God, is that we are to utterly depend on him. We are to receive his gift. We are to trust in him and not in, our, and not in ourselves. So the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that our self-reliance keeps us from going all out to pursue Jesus. And the passage continues. If we look at verse 20, uh, and he said to, to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth, all these commandments that he mentioned earlier, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And I want to just stop right there for a minute. When you look at the Greek word translated uh, looking at, what it, it, it's more than just a, a, a cursory just viewing someone at a glance. It's this idea of looking intently at someone. This idea of examining someone, scrutinizing someone. That's what this word carries, what's the meaning that this word carries. And when I look at this word, I think that Jesus, Jesus truly saw this person. Jesus saw this guy. He saw what this guy wanted to accomplish. He saw this guy's hopes and dreams. He saw everything that had taken place in this guy's life. He saw the pride that I don't think this guy was even aware of yet. He saw the shortcomings of this guy. He saw all the ways that he, that he fell short. He saw, he saw everything. He saw everything about this guy. And he loved him. And this word love here, when you look at the Greek, is the, is the most powerful form of love in Scripture. The agape love that can only come from God. We don't have the capacity in and of ourselves to love someone that powerfully. Only God can do that. The Son of God here. Jesus loved him in the maximum way possible after completely seeing who he was. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus issues to him the invitation that he had issued to other people before him. Earlier in the book of Mark, in, in chapter 1, he had issued that same invitation to, to Andrew and Peter. He had issued it to James and John, where he said, come, follow me. And they left everything, and they followed him. A couple chapters later, he visits a guy named Levi in the tax collector booth. And again, the same invitation, come and follow me. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now he issues the same invitation to this guy. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the same, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is why I think sometimes the rich young ruler is often mischaracterized. He's characterized as someone who has a lot of, who's a, has a kind of a puffed up mentality, someone who's maybe arrogant, but he walked away sorrowful. He didn't get defensive. He walked away probably with his shoulders slumped over, probably like he had just gotten kicked in the gut. I think this might have been the first maybe time he was even aware of these issues. And he went away because he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Again, because those who have wealth were those who were favored by God, right? If they can't do it, then who can? Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. 
and said to him, then who can be saved? You know, there's some scholars out there that'll tell you that that the, uh, the eye of the needle is kind of a gate around the city of Jerusalem and that if a, if a camel gets down on their knees, they can kind of walk their way. That's not what this passage is saying at all, if you've ever heard that. What he's looking at here is he's looking at a, a little needle, a little needle that you use to sew clothes, and that little silver needle that has a little hole in the top that you put thread through. He's saying it's easier for a camel to fit through that than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Which is why they came up with the answer, well, then who can be saved? The second thing that I want us to see this morning is that our reliance on other things keeps us from going all out to pursue Jesus. Our, our reliance on other things holds us back from this all-out pursuit of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with stuff. You know, it says he walked away for he had great possessions. There's nothing wrong with stuff. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with anything like that. The question is, as Pastor Jeff often says, is, is, that, is that something that you have or does it have you? That's really the question, the question to ask. Because if something like wealth has us, then it's not really about the wealth itself. It's about what does it really stand for in our lives? What does it represent to us? Maybe it's kind of a looking under the hood of the car and seeing, okay, what is it that's driving that desire to hold on to wealth? I don't know what it was for this guy. Scripture doesn't tell us. Scripture doesn't tell us what it was, why he was holding on so tightly. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it was his, it, for him, maybe his wealth was his sense of accomplishment. Maybe his wealth, he was able to look around at all he had and said, look at how hard I've worked. Look at, look at how much I've achieved that's what his wealth was. And maybe if he were to take that away, he would have no evidence that he had achieved much. I don't know. Maybe that was the issue for him. Maybe the issue for him was this sense of being good and blessed. Maybe it was an identity issue. Maybe it was how he saw himself. Because after all, if, if because he had all this wealth, he was seen by others to be favored by God, then if he takes that wealth away, if he gives it away, then maybe he's now no longer blessed. Maybe he's now no longer good. Maybe it was an issue of who he really is. Maybe it was an identity issue. Maybe it was an issue of getting value from others. Maybe that's what his wealth was to him. He, he wanted to, he wanted, when he walked by, he wanted people to look at him. And people wanted to, oh, stop. Oh, there's, there's that guy. You know, people to, to recognize who he was. Maybe that's what his wealth was for him. And he looked to other people for value, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know, maybe for him, his wealth was his, his sense of comfort and security. Maybe he kind of had the mentality that I can weather anything. Any hurricane that comes through here, any stock market crash, anything that comes up, look at all I've got. I can weather anything. I don't know, maybe his stuff represented comfort and security for him. I don't know what, I don't know what his stuff represented to him, but all we really know is it represented something so powerful that he was not willing to leave it for Christ. And we know that anytime we look to something for life and for ultimate satisfaction apart from Christ, then we're looking at the textbook definition for an idol. Anytime we look, for something for look to something for life, for satisfaction apart from Christ, we have an idol. That's, that's what it is. And, there's, and don't get me wrong, it's also not saying that there's anything wrong with, you know, that you have to do the exact same thing he did. 
There's nothing that says that, oh, okay, Jesus called him to, to leave everything behind and follow him, so I've got to go and get rid of all my stuff and, and then follow Christ. That's not what he's saying either. What he's saying, though, is that was that guy's issue. That's what he was struggling with. But the fact of the matter is we're, our reliance on things outside of Christ keeps us from, from going all out to follow him as well. So the question really that we need to ask ourselves is what are we looking to for life outside of Christ? What is it that we look to that kind of give us something that we're not looking to get from Christ? Maybe for some of us, it's similar. Maybe it has to do with wealth and stuff, maybe in a similar way as, as this guy. I don't know. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's different. Maybe, maybe for us, our thing is our, our career. Maybe, you know, things are kind of hard at home. They're kind of whatever they are there. But it's when I go to work, that's when I feel respected. That's where people look up to me. That's where I, I feel like I'm accomplishing something great. Maybe we look to our jobs to give us some semblance of life instead of looking to Christ for those things. I don't know. Maybe we look to a hobby of some kind. Maybe there's something that you, that you look to for life in a hobby. Maybe it's something like sports. Maybe it's playing a sport that you would not miss for anything. Or maybe it's, maybe it's just watching a sport. Maybe you're someone that has to spend all day, Saturday and Sunday, watching football. And if anyone ever asks you to, to get up and do something else, it's no, that's not, I do not get up that day. And you get angry with them because that's what I do that day. And we're holding on to something too tightly. I don't know what it might be. Maybe it's, maybe it's our, our sense of appearance. Maybe you're someone that has to have this, a certain, the right clothes, the right look. Maybe you're, you're someone that when, when you walk by, you want people to notice what you're wearing. Maybe it's clothes. Maybe it's the shape of our bodies. Maybe we think, if I could just lose a few pounds, then I'll really find satisfaction. I mean, this is kind of what it was for me. It was sort of wrapped around my appearance for a long time. Again, remember, I was trying, someone trying to build myself up. And I was someone that, that worked out in the gym diligently. And I never missed a workout. Because again, I was, my hope through that was that if I could just get a certain look, if I could get up enough weight, if I could, if I could go get a certain cut, then, then people will look at me and, they'll look at, and I'll have more value in their eyes. I'll maybe measure up to something for them. And I did not want to miss a workout. And I got upset if I ever had to miss a workout, because it would set me back. You know, I had a goal in mind. I needed to, I needed to achieve that. And if I missed a workout, I was going to get more sore the next time. If I missed a workout, I was going to not be able to get up as much weight the next time. So I didn't want to miss anything. And I got upset if I did. Again, a clue that I'm holding on to something a little too tightly. I don't know, maybe another way to ask the question is, what would, is there something in your life that you wouldn't willingly give up if you felt like God wanted you to? What is it in your life that you feel like you're holding on to really tightly? And if you don't know, my, my encouragement would be to ask someone close to you, a spouse, an adult kid, a parent, a best friend, whoever, whoever you're close to, I bet they know if you don't. What is it that we're holding on to too tightly? And then once we identify that, maybe to take a, a step deeper and look under the hood and see why am I holding on to it that tightly? What am I looking to get from it? What kind of satisfaction, what kind of life am I looking to get from this thing? Because again, our reliance on other things 
keeps us from going all out to pursue Jesus. And the passage continues in verse 27. Jesus looked at them, looked at, the, looked at his disciples, and he said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So the third thing that I want us to see this morning is that our failure to, to see the rewards keeps us from going all out to pursue Jesus. Our failure to be able to see the rewards holds us back from this all-out pursuit of Christ. Look at the passage here. In, uh, in verse, you see, in verse 28, Peter speaks. You know, again, they had just seen this, this rich young ruler, this influential guy who wasn't willing to leave everything to follow Jesus. He was holding on to something too tightly. He wasn't willing to, to make that step. So Peter kind of notices, huh, I've done that. I've left everything and followed you. What about me? And he almost kind of suggests that he, he made a sacrifice. I've, I've made a sacrifice for you. What, what about me? Jesus is, is quick to answer him. Jesus says, truly, I say there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or anything. When you start looking at this list of things that people have given up, and then you look at who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands. You start looking at this list, and he's, he's holding up the promise of material resources, of relationships, of family, of even eternal life with, with God. He's holding up all these, all these promises. Anyone who has left any of that, this is what you'll receive. But don't get too caught up in the minutia of looking to what the actual rewards are. Notice the motivation for them. No one who has left house or brothers or any of that for my sake and for the gospel. That's the motivation. You see, he's not talking about health and wealth Christianity. He's not talking about this idea of if you give a dollar to God, God's going to give you a hundred. Because the motivation for that is wealth. The motivation of that is to, is to get rich. What he's saying here is the motivation is for my sake and for the gospel. When you've left all this stuff, when you leave behind any other thing for my sake, for Jesus' sake, and for the gospel, he's going to take care of everything else. He's going to, in fact, blow you away with it. You'll receive a hundredfold that much in what you've returned if you, just, if you do it for my sake, if you do it as you pursue Jesus, as you go all out to pursue Jesus. Jesus says he'll take care of everything else. He says it even more clearly in Matthew 6, where he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All these things in the context of that passage, food, clothing, shelter, all the necessities of life. I'm going to take care of all that, Jesus says, if you seek first my kingdom and his righteousness. You seek Christ first. I'm going to take care of all that stuff. I'm going to take care of all that stuff. So when Peter pipes up about this idea of, well, I've sacrificed a lot to follow you. 
Jesus says it's not a sacrifice. It's more like an investment. It's something that you've given up something, but you're going to get something far greater in the future that you almost can't even imagine. He illustrates this another way in Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 44, where he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and then hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, did this man view it as a sacrifice, what he had to sell, what he had to get rid of, what he had to leave behind? No, it wasn't a sacrifice for him because he had found the treasure. He had found something that was so worthwhile in his eyes that he was willing to step away to sell all of this other stuff. What does the passage say? From joy over it, he goes and sells all he has, sells all he has and buys that field because that's worth it to him. It doesn't matter what he's gotten rid of. Now I have this in his joy. So Jesus offers up the promise of rewards. And this is a promise. It is one that we can, that we can hold on to with whatever we leave behind for his sake. That he's going to take care of us. But remember too that the promise isn't about assets. It's not about the stuff. The promise is about trust. And it's about priorities. It's about trust. If, if Jesus promises this, if Jesus holds up this promise, do I believe him? If I were to look at my life from the outside in, if someone took a step back and looked at my life, would they see that I believe him? That if I leave something in this life for Jesus' sake, he's going to take care of the rest? Is that something that is a, is a priority? Because it's about trust, it's about priorities. And, and let's be honest, with priorities, we all live according to our priorities. If we don't have time for something, what we're really saying is that something just isn't a high enough priority. So we all live according to our priorities. It's just a matter of, is, is Christ at the top of that list? Does my life show that Christ is at the top of that list? So we're called to trust in the promises of the ultimate rewarder. We're called to trust in, in Christ and what he offers up. And we're told that the journey, it's not necessarily gonna be easy. In fact, we're told very explicitly here that it won't be easy. Look at verse, uh, what is it, verse, verse 30, where he says, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions. It's not gonna be easy. If you start to go all out to pursue Christ and your life starts to reflect that, people are going to see that and people aren't going to understand. People are going to see that and they might think differently of you. People might think of you as being kind of a, kind of a prude or kind of, people might think in a negative way of you because they, they see you doing this and, and maybe it kind of makes them feel bad about a certain level of their life or makes, makes them think about something in a, in, a, in a negative way relating to you. People aren't going to understand. But this is only, honestly, just one kind of difficulty. I mean, there are other kinds of difficulties we're going to face as well. I mean, think about it. If you've got something in your life that you've been looking to for life, if you've got something else that you're looking to for your ultimate satisfaction apart from Christ, and you try to change and now look to Christ, it's hard to leave that. I mean, this is a habit. This is, a, this is an addiction. This is a, something I've been looking to for life for a long time. It's hard just to step away from that. That is not easy. 
But the question isn't, is it going to be easy or is it going to be hard? The question is, is it going to be worth it? That's ultimately the question. Is it worth going through what I need to go through? Because it's going to feel like a fog. It's going to feel like a fog where in the midst of a fog, I can't see anything except my circumstances. I can't see anything about how hard it feels. That's all I can see. Am I, am I able to hold on to the promises of Christ in the midst of that difficulty? In the midst of me trying to leave one thing behind to pursue Christ, am I able to hold on to his promises and really trust him in the midst of that exchange? So do we trust the one making the promises? Do we hold on to the promises, trusting that he'll, he'll take us there? Now, this next, this next month in December will mark two years that my, my family and I have been here in the state of Florida. Um, we, we got here. We have a, I showed you Evan earlier. We have a, another child who's, who's five. Um, his name's Barrett. And he came here when he was just three years old. And he, we moved here from Dallas, and he had never seen the beach. So we were excited. We were going to get to show Barrett the beach for the first time. We, I mean, we had talked to him about it. We had, told, we had talked to him, oh, buddy, it's, it's, it's going to be sand. He loves sand. There's going to be water. He, he loves water. He, there's going to be, oh, it's, it's got, you've really just got to see it. So we were excited when we took him that first day, that first time to the beach. And we were there, and that first weekend after we were here, we went and uh, my wife's family was in town, and they went with us, so we all went. We took two cars, and my wife and her sister got there first with, with Barrett in the car with them. And Barrett got out and started playing a little bit off to the side. It's December at the beach in a public parking lot. There weren't many cars there. And he starts playing off to the side, and they start getting stuff out of the car. I get there. We start getting stuff out because anyone going to the beach with a three-year-old for the first time brings entirely too much stuff. So we, 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 keep, we go. We finally get everything gathered in, and we're... We're now, all right, buddy, come on, let's, let's, let's go to the beach. And we're, we, we grab his hand, and all of a sudden, he starts pulling back. He, 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 he didn't want to leave. He didn't, he didn't want to leave. You see, we looked, and he had been playing in this, in this puddle off to the side while my wife was unloading. It was probably about 10 foot long, about 5 foot wide, and people had been walking through it. They had tracked some sand in there, and he was splashing around. He was playing with the sand, and he, had, he was having fun. He didn't want to leave. And we're like, come on, buddy, let's go to the, let's go to the beach. It's just right up here. We, we couldn't really see it. It was sand dunes there, a couple buildings. Come on, buddy, it's right around here. Let's go to the beach. And he did not want to go. He pulled back. He screamed. He yelled. He did not, like only a three-year-old can. He did not want to leave. Eventually, we came, and we had to exert the authority that only really parents can, and we, we moved him a little bit more towards the beach. And we, we got him to the beach. We got him to that place, and you should have seen him. He put his, his feet in the sand, and he looked. There's more sand than he's ever imagined. We moved him up to the water. He put his feet in the water. The, the wave came up. It went back. He kind of falls down on his rear end like little kids do. He bends down in the water. He picks up the sand, holds it up, drops the sand, just watching it fall. Starts splashing around, having a great time. And like any parents who take their child to the beach for the first time, we also took a camera. And we were able to snap a couple pictures of him. If you look up here to the screen now, this is Barrett when he was three at the beach for the first time. 
splashing around in the water, having a blast. You can't, you can't really see his, his face too clearly here, but if you were to see it, I promise you, it was the look of utter and complete joy. Oftentimes we get, we get caught up playing in our, in our own little puddles, looking to life in areas here when we've been given the promise of something so much greater. We've been given the promise of a beach. If we'll just go with the one who promises it to us, if we'll just take that journey with him to where it leads, he'll lead us to a place that's going to just blow us away if we trust him. If we trust him, if we're willing to go through those hard steps to get there, holding on to his promises, knowing that there's something great, if I can just get there, because I trust him. So what's keeping you from going all out to pursue Jesus? What is it that's, that's holding you back, whether it's yourself, whether it's something else? My, cha- my first challenge this morning is to identify what that thing is and what it represents to you. But then the question comes up, okay, well, what do I do now? If I've made it this far, what do I do now? Well, we have a C4 model of discipleship here at the church. C1 in that four-step model is is connecting with God. So in this situation, the first thing would be to figure out what is it that's keeping me from connecting with God? Once I've figured that out, the next step is C2, which is connecting with other people. We have a lot of great outlets here at the church through which you can connect with other people. We have connection groups that meet all different times on Sunday morning, different times of the week. People that you can go and connect with, start building relationships with. We have men's ministry events. That's kind of my area. We have uh, Iron Men at 6.30 in the morning on Wednesdays at, at uh, Smiley's. We have 6.45 in the evenings on Wednesdays. We have uh, the evening study over by the church offices. There are lots of women's studies that take place, the website's really the best place to go to look for those because there's so many different ones that meet at different times. Um, You've got Celebrate Recovery that meets where people are working through their hurts and their habits and their hangups and their lives. And maybe if you can go and connect with someone at one of these venues, you can find someone that maybe whatever that is keeping you from Christ might be something that they can identify with. Maybe it's something that's kept them. And maybe they're a few steps down the road and in that journey and want to Maybe walk alongside you. Maybe you don't have to do all this alone. And that's actually really my first and main challenge is once you've identified that, to tell someone. Maybe you've never even known it before now. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you knew instantly what that thing was for you. It came to mind quickly, what that thing is for you. And now the challenge is to now tell someone. Bring it out in the open. And let's start to take those steps to really go all out to pursue Jesus with all that you are. Because his promises that he holds out is a reward greater than we can imagine if we trust him. And we take those steps.